0: We need to squeeze every single last vote that we can, and that means reaching out to our folks in a way that is culturally competent. That means engaging our folks year-round in a way that meets them where they're at, and that means working in every language that we need to at every level of the ballot so that we can turn out our non-English-speaking voters in addition to our English-speaking voters.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mohan Sesadri, the executive director of APIPA, the Asian American C4 in Pennsylvania, as well as co-chair of the Asian American Power Network. I asked Mohan about his organizing work and how it was going with his part of the electorate in that swing state. API PA is a good window into how progressives mobilize in the states and nationally among specific constituencies. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Mohan at API PA. Mohan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, my name
0: is Mohan Zechadri. I'm the executive director of the Asian Pacific Islander Political Alliance, APIPA, as well as the co-chair of the Asian American Power Network. I'm from Wisconsin originally, and I came up organizing for Planned Parenthood, uh, especially in their youth programs and doing campus organizing across the country. I came to Pennsylvania over five years ago to uh, run field after uh, the Donald Trump was elected, and especially to work on the Affordable Care Act and DACA defense fights. And through that, really got to see just the degree to which um, there was just a missing piece in our progressive political infrastructure and our movement ecosystems, the ability for our infrastructure and our community organizations to engage Asian Pacific Islander voters. So I uh, got to spend the, the last couple of years Running around the state and running around the country, building movement ecosystems and political infrastructure by and for Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders. And I'm really proud of all of the work that we got to do, especially uh, supporting uh, President Biden to win the 2020 election in Pennsylvania, as well as all the work that we're about to do to make sure that we keep Pennsylvania blue this year.
1: You said you grew up in Wisconsin. Tell me a little about your family. Sure. Sure. So my
0: parents uh, immigrated from South India a couple decades ago. They actually uh, met in Jersey, as Indian immigrants often do, and moved to Wisconsin. I grew up in Waukesha County, Wisconsin, of uh, crucial Waukesha County fame. And uh, that's actually where I was on The Coordinated in 2016. But, uh, you know, it was a really interesting place to grow up as a brown Indian American, especially immediately post 9-11. We actually, we moved around a lot when I was a kid especially moved to uh, more suburban to rural a- areas about three months after 9-11. So I grew up in a very tight-knit, a pretty insular by necessity Indian-American community, mostly because in, in a lot of parts of the you know our neighborhoods and a lot of parts of where I was growing up, we didn't exactly feel safe socializing with uh, other folks. Specifically where I grew up, it was uh, about... Um, 20 minutes up the road from the Oak Creek uh, Gurdwara, the Sikh temple that 10 years ago was a- attacked by a white nationalist gunman uh, who murdered uh, six members of our community. The 10-year anniversary of that is coming up uh, pretty soon. So that's how I grew up. You know, we, uh, we didn't really talk politics other than in regards to how it affected us, You know, flying while brown, like being searched every time when we uh, went through the TSA, things like that. I don't think I really knew what a union was until I, you know, graduated high school or went off to college. We grew up with a lot of really, you know, base progressive values, but never really had the political language to actually
1: talk about that. It sounds like you had to grow up a little too aware of your race and your background and your difference for for my taste, I think. Is that how you feel? I would say so. There were a lot of times both
0: when we were, especially when we were traveling, uh, and even back home where it just really felt like you had a target on your back, you know, even as a kid, because of the color of your skin, because of people's assumptions about your religion, my family is is Hindu American. And, you know, while that should not actually make a difference about whether or not we're being uh, targeted by Islamophobia, folks outside our community do tend to lump us all together. And so it really, I think it really gave my family this understanding of our place in America uh, as uh, folks who weren't necessarily the most welcome, especially that time and even now. And also, I think, really helped develop my parents' understanding as immigrants of what is actually necessary in in terms of what needs to change in this country so that our our communities and our families can actually be safe.
1: Still uncomfortable hearing that kind of thing, even though I know it's widespread and even though I've married an Asian person and have Asian children. Tell me a little about the educational path you took. I went to Fordham University. I actually wanted to uh, be a voting rights lawyer back home in the
0: Midwest. The summer uh, of after my junior year, I signed up online for uh, this, you know, Planned Parenthood volunteer form or applied for an internship or something. This was years ago Um, and, you know, just was was going to be home for the summer in Wisconsin, wanted something to do, Um, was very clear still that I wanted to be a lawyer as what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, And I got a call that night uh, from an organizer with Planned Parenthood saying, hey, you know, there's a abortion ban hitting the state tomorrow, can you turn out to the Capitol and uh, show up and, you know, hold a sign, uh, be in the committee hearing, things like that. And that really, I think, took my educational path off the rails in terms of seeing real community organizing, real storytelling work for the first time in my life. When I was growing up, the civil rights heroes that we were exposed to in terms of our culture, in terms of, what you know, what we were taught were lawyers, were Uh, kind of the activists leading the charge. And we never really actually had any sort of education when when it came to political work or movement work or things like that. And so when I was growing up, when I was going to school, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, the only thing that remotely felt kind of like a way in which I could make change in my community and in the world was going to law school and argue in a courtroom. And to see this whole other side of this work, to see this whole whole other side of actually serving our communities in a way that actually empowers them to take power, to take the fight into their own hands and to make that change themselves, just really completely blew my mind. So I uh, kind of threw the rest of my education away. I went, uh, you know, spent the summer organizing with Planned Parenthood, uh, went back to school, uh, started doing campus organizing. Went to Fordham University in the Bronx, which is a Catholic institution. And so uh, things like uh, access to condoms and birth control and STI testing on campus just weren't a thing, despite taking money from the federal government to provide those things. So we got to organize that. The uh, student organizers I got to throw down with helped unionize our adjunct faculty. We turned out a lot of folks to the Black Lives Matter protests across the city. I actually almost failed out of college because I was supposed to write my senior thesis on Uh, gerrymandering in the late Roman Republic. I was a a classics major. Uh, And uh, instead, our school decided to union bust our adjunct faculty. And rather than actually do any schoolwork, I I wanted to to organize uh, the students uh, against that instead. And so graduated kind of by the skin of my teeth because I happened to have enough credits to pick up a poli-sci major as well, pretty much completely by accident, and then uh, went back home to work the 2016 election.
1: Sounds like you got pretty politicized along the way there.
0: A little bit, yeah. You know how it is, you you start to organize, you start to feel part of something bigger than yourself, you start to feel alive for the first time and you just want more of it. And especially, you know, knowing that this was a thing that I could a thing that I could do without going into untold amounts of student debt and spending, you know, four four more years in school, but also just a thing that made me feel alive for the first time in my life, just really got me hooked on community organizing and on political work. I went to work elections, I went to work campaigns, I spent uh, years running around Pennsylvania doing anything I can, both because it felt important and was important, and also just because it was the thing that got me up in the morning.
1: So what was the first job out of college? The uh, no, Democratic Party Wisconsin
0: coordinated campaign.
1: Right. And
0: tell me about what you learned from that. For one thing, I learned that we need to invest in every community and all across our battlegrounds and not leave any votes up for grabs. Um, especially being in Wisconsin in 2016, and then coming to Pennsylvania and just seeing the the resource differential, the mm-hmm. number of organizers per county, things like that. You know, I don't. Uh, I'm you know, incredible amounts of ink have obviously been spilled on that state and that election in terms of what went wrong. Um, but one thing I know for sure is that, uh, as far as I know, I was the only person uh, who had Indian American and South Asian canvassers and South Asian, you know, volunteer leaders. Uh, helping run my program, the, the aunts and uncles that I grew up with, talking to their neighbors, knocking on their neighbors' doors, including in languages other than English, talking about the importance of getting out the vote. It was the first time that I saw folks come through my community and actually want to talk to my people. Uh, and it was the first time I saw the all the families that I grew up with actually get excited and fired up about this election because they saw someone from their community actually getting involved and they saw that it was possible. That's one of the reasons why we founded APIPA, because our people are so hungry for political engagement. Our people are so hungry for power and for justice. And for so long, they've just been cut out and uh, put, kept out of spaces where there's access to that. And when we actually bring that to them, when we teach our foot communities how to organize, when we talk to them about these issues, we find that our folks are excited and ready to show up and vote, to throw down on these issues, to pass meaningful legislation that uplifts our communities. And in so many cases across the country, and especially in places like Pennsylvania, you know, we're a fundamentally progressive community with an outreach gap that gets stereotyped as a turnout gap that gets stereotyped as, you know, a a lack of engagement on our part. When really there's just been no one knocking on our doors and calling our phones and saying, Hey, can you come out
1: that Wisconsin in 2016, if you're working on the democratic coordinated, it's gotta be one of the most painful places to be in the country. Such a narrow loss in such a calamity of an election. Absolutely, I'm from Jim Sensenbrenner's
0: district, I uh, CD five. I grew up, um, you know, with uh, learned, hearing about Russ Feingold, and to to get a chance to actually back those candidates and to be backing candidates who are committed to making my, you know, our districts and our communities better places down ballot. In addition to the top of the ticket, uh, meant a whole lot. And yeah, that loss was really something.
1: Wisconsin went through a whole series of absolutely nail-biting statewide elections, mostly landing the wrong way for a number of cycles there. Do you understand why half the state thinks differently than you? I'm going to be honest. I've been away from
0: home for uh, about five years now. And uh, I can tell you a heck of a lot about how Pennsylvanians think. Um, I'm not necessarily the right person to talk about Wisconsin anymore. You
1: know, it's the same thing in Pennsylvania, isn't it? I mean, half the state almost exactly also is aligned against us. Do you understand those people at all? I think I think so. I think that in you know
0: in in many cases it is not a dissimilar problem than when it comes to API communities, right? That in a lot of cases communities feel left behind and disinvested in. And yes, there are absolutely some folks who are never going to get, and there are absolutely you know par- districts and parts of the, the state that we're never going to win. But there are also whole areas that are up for grabs if we actually just resource organizing in those areas. And just keep talking to them and talking to them and building trust and building base and building power, and finding ways to actually deliver for them in a way that doesn't leave other communities hung out to dry. And I think when we actually show up year round in the way that I see the you know Democratic Party of Wisconsin doing these days, we can actually flip these areas. It just it's going to take a lot a lot of legwork and a lot of a lot of resources.
1: Tell me about the founding story for your Pennsylvania organization. Why did you tackle that? For me, it was Governor Wolf's re-elect in 2018. I was working on the uh,
0: independent expenditure for Planned Parenthood, and I was knocking doors up and down uh, the streets in Harrisburg, and there would be these rows and rows of low-income and affordable housing filled with ethnic Nepali Bhutanese refugees who came here you know, after the genocide in Bhutan. And Harrisburg is actually the second biggest resettlement zone for uh, refugees from the Bhutanese community in the country after Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and, you know, so many folks didn't speak any English, but they, they'd they open the door and they'd try to talk to me because I looked like them. And there were a whole lot of refugee folks, but a whole lot of voters too, who just never actually been talked to successfully. And, you know, the, the state, the infrastructure had decided that this was Planned Parenthood's turf. And that makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense for An organization that doesn't have a history of working in the Asian community, that doesn't have the language skills or the cultural competence to engage our communities, to actually be the folks who are trying to micro-target those voters. And I looked around and I saw that we didn't actually have any sort of infrastructure capable of talking to our people, persuading them on the issues and mobilizing them to vote. Obviously, the top of the tickets are always important. Obviously, the gubernatorial and the presidential are important. But we have state house districts and state senate districts that in 2018, we won or lost by 76 votes, by 100 votes, by 1,000 votes. And in those districts, we have 500 Koreans. We have 1,000 Chinese folks. We have 2,000 Indian Americans who no one has ever actually bothered to meet where they're at and move them and excite them to get out and vote for, for our candidates. And uh, I happened to, you know, through this experience, just really see the need to actually build this asian political power and also this infrastructure that ultimately is about resourcing the broader ecosystem and ensuring that we can actually win the races that we need to win up and down the ballot and seeing that when our communities turn out it's actually a net gain for all progressives rather than just something that's just about the asian american vote because we're the margin of victory in pennsylvania these days especially after 2020. and so i i went to work for governor wolf i went to work running uh, the governor's office of asian american affairs and through that, got to meet community leaders all across the state who, over the past five years, had really deeply come to similar conclusions and were ready to actually come together and form two really key pieces of what's now our Asian-American uh, movement infrastructure in Pennsylvania. The first is a first-of-its-kind uh, you know, 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit table or coalition called the AAPIPA Power Caucus. That was launched in January of 2020, and it works to year round coordinate civic engagement like voter registration and GOTV, as well as issue organizing across every major Asian community organization on the 501c3 side across Pennsylvania. Uh, That piece of the infrastructure has spent the last three years um, building and running a first of its kind Asian policy platform built off of literally thousands of conversations with our communities asking them not just things like, what is the state of language access in your community? Or what are the pain points when it comes to anti Asian violence in your community? We've asked them that we talk about when anti Asian violence is happening, especially as it has been on the rise since uh, COVID started. And since Donald Trump started melting off about China virus and things like that. But also, you know, is it happening because you're wearing a hijab? Is it happening because of your perceived immigration status? But also talking to them about issues and asking them questions that no one has ever a- actually bothered to, to ask our communities like where do you stand on the green new deal where do you stand on 15 and a union where do you stand on reproductive rights and access to birth control where do you stand on access to healthcare, making it a- more affordable making it more accessible expanding it to include everyone things like that and we've been doing that work for the last couple of years in 15 different languages to ensure that we can actually build a sample size and get our folks excited to throw down on the shared policy platform that we're going to be launching in June. And then in addition to starting this power caucus, the statewide see through table, we founded APIPA, the first ever Asian American and Pacific Islander 501c4 in Pennsylvania's history. That launched in July of 2020. We ended up running uh, the largest Asian-American field program in U.S. history in the, of any election cycle in the 2020 election cycle in Pennsylvania. That's as much to say about the size of Asian-American field programs in the past as it was about ours. We made uh, millions of phone calls. We sent umpteen amounts of mail. We ran digital ads. And we did that also, again, in depending on the tactic, between four and 15 languages because we knew that especially if we want to get down to the margins, and especially in elections that are as close as Pennsylvania is always going to be up and down the ballot, we need every we need to squeeze every single last vote that we can. And that means reaching out to our folks in a way that is culturally competent. That means engaging our folks year round in a way that meets them where they're at. And that means working in every language that we need to at every level of the ballot so that we can turn out our non-English speaking voters in addition to our English speaking voters. And especially in a place like Pennsylvania, where you have you know, 600,000 Asian Americans total, of which half are eligible to vote. You have a population where 68% of our communities speak a language other than English at home, which means that it's not just a matter of can this person speak enough English to get by and become a citizen and go to work and things like that, but what uh, language are they actually comfortable having conversations in? Because that's the language that we're actually going to be able to persuade them and mobilize them in not the one that they can, you know, st- string together a couple sentences in order to, you know, again, get through the day, but the one that they actually feel comfortable enough to drop their guards, stay on the line, keep the phone conversation going, and actually listen to us when we talk about which candidates are actually going to stand with and fight for them, rather than which ones want to kick them out of the country, get rid of healthcare, get rid of unions, destroy the environment, things like that.
1: I guess I want to ask you a bit of a naive question, which is, Why does it make sense to have a broad Asian organization when there are so many different kinds of Asians, or there are so many kinds of immigrants that aren't Asian? If you're talking about Hispanic Americans, you have another whole set of many different languages and countries, and there are African Americans from Africa with lots of different languages. Why shouldn't there be a Vietnamese group, a Chinese group, an Indian group, or why shouldn't there be just one immigrant group? Does it make sense to organize it this way across Asia when Indians are so different than Chinese, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Sure, and well, so part of the answer for Pennsylvania specifically is that
0: you know there is infrastructure that historically and already exists for politically organizing Latinx communities for politically organizing. Uh, black communities. There isn't that gap in Pennsylvania and in states across the country in a way that there has for so long been for our communities. And the second is about building a shared political identity, because at the end of the day, um, you know, the folks who want us out of the country, the folks who want to ban immigration, the folks who wanted the Muslim ban, uh, the folks who want, you know, a new Chinese Exclusion Act, they're not saying yeah, we, we you know, we hate the Chinese Americans, but we're fine with Korean Americans. They're not saying we love Japanese Americans, but we hate Indians and Bangladeshis, right? They're anti-Asian. And so our folks need to organize around a shared political identity, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all we need, but in many cases, we're all we got. That we're building a political coalition. It's not about what we have in common culturally. It's not even what we have in common historically, because we're talking about you know India and Pakistan, we're talking about China and Vietnam, we're talking about communities that have spent thousands of years invading each other. But now they all live in Philadelphia or Bucks County or Dauphin County, and at the end of the day that they're actually the ones who are gonna to come together and understand that they want the same things, and the people who don't want them to have those things lump them in together. And so they might as well join forces and build a coalition so the way we do our work is multifaceted on the on the c3 side with that table for example we don't have one big massive pan-asian community organization that is trying to do all of the voter registration and all of the non you know non-partisan voter contact because you're absolutely right there are so many complexities and diversities in our community and we have community organizations that have been around for anywhere from forty to a hundred years in our ecosystem. And that's a whole lot of trust from the community and a whole lot of respect and a whole lot of tradition of showing up through this cultural or community organization. That a brand new, you know, statewide or national organization coming into town to turn all those folks out just ain't gonna actually be able to measure up to. That when the South Asian Association of Lancaster holds an event or when the organization of Chinese Americans in Pittsburgh holds an event, they're going to get, you know, 10, 12 times as many people as, you know, we are moving into into that turf because people know to show up for them. So on the C3 side, what we do is we fundraise for and we train and we invest in these ancestral community organizations that have been in the streets, have been in the community, have been doing the work for so long. But have been, for so long never had access to any of these resources that a political organization or a statewide or national organization can. You know, for example, we're talking about organizations that they don't have any staff. They have a budget of you know maybe five to fifteen thousand dollars a year. A lot of really well-meaning board members, or a lot of really well-meaning volunteers. But no one's ever gone to them and been like, "Hey, you know that Lunar New Year festival that you're throwing? That ten thousand community members from across." this region show up to? What if you had voter registration forms at that event? So we go to them and we say, hey, what if you had registration forms at that event? And then we cut them a check for $5,000 to pay someone to actually distribute them and get people to sign up. And then once they've done that, once they've seen that it's possible, we go to them and say, hey, this time, you know, write us a plan. Here's a template. Here's a training. Write us a voter registration plan. And write us a really simple grant application, so that the next time we fund you, you know how to do plan writing. You know how to write a field plan. You know how to do you know reporting if that's necessary. You know what grant grantors and funders want to see, so that they can actually go out there and do that on their own in the future, either through us and our ecosystem or separately if that's what they choose. To actually give them the tools and democratize this information, that has been held so long in spaces that aren't necessarily accessible to our communities, especially because a lot of these civic engagement spaces, you can't just turn in five VR forms and be part of this coalition, right? You need to be able to accept hundreds of thousands of dollars and knock on tens of thousands of doors if you want actual, you know if you want van access, if you want access to their dialer, if you want their funding, things like that. And our community organizations are actually never gonna be able to get to that level of knocking those tens of thousands of doors if we don't train them up to that level. So that's what we do on the C3 side. And on the C4 side, we're about scale and scope, right? The C3 side handles the depth. The C3 side handles the deep, very long-term in-language community. And then the C4 side makes millions of calls, knocks on hundreds of thousands of doors in 15 different languages. Yes, but in a way that actually builds a broad coalition among all our people, again, saying, hey, you know, you may not think that you have uh, a lot in common with the Bangladeshi community down the road, with the Chinese community down the road. But they are dealing with the same language access issues. They're dealing with the same anti-Asian violence. They're dealing with the same anti immigrant hate. And if, if you want to actually win on these issues, you need to build coalition with them as the people who understand your experiences the most, especially when it comes to language access. Obviously, we're not the only communities that deal with that. But in a lot of cases, especially in a, a state like Pennsylvania, the starkest gaps when it comes to state government, when it comes to health institutions, when it comes to anything other than nonprofits and institutions that are explicitly by and for our community tend to just completely drop the ball when it comes to actually serving our people, especially in language. You know, when we ran that survey that I talked about to build that policy platform, we found that a stunning majority of our communities have to rely on their friends and family for basic translations, including in doctor's office, which means that you have, you know, a six-year-old telling their grandmother that she has cancer, which is a, a, a horrible traumatic experience. And that's what happens when these institutions and our government drops the ball and lets our people down. And, you know, our Chinese-American community understands that. Our Pakistani-American community understands that. Our Bhutanese-American community understands that because they had to grow up doing that translation as well. And they had to grow up seeing uh, the, you know, the shame on their, their parents' faces when they couldn't understand the doctor and they had to be translated for or in that PTA meeting or at the bank or things like that. And that is an opportunity to politicize our community. That is an opportunity to build our base and ultimately build some power for our people and, you know, pick up some seats and win some elections along the way.
1: When I talk to activists in a variety of communities, I get the sense that we sometimes overestimate how progressive our communities actually are. You said the Asian community in Pennsylvania is fundamentally progressive. And I think that the Evidence for a lot of communities is very much more mixed than that and that their loyalties are being competed for pretty vigorously and sometimes deceptively by the other side. What makes you think that you are dealing with a fundamentally progressive community or is that something that you want to create where it is only partially there? Well, I mean, for one thing,
0: 75% of our community in Pennsylvania voted for Biden. I'm not sure if you're familiar with API data in California, but they're leading the charge in terms of doing a lot of this research. They find that very broadly with, you know, some specific carve outs per ethnicity, our communities are above that 50%. But I bet
1: you, if you looked at the polling for them now, as we approach a midterm where Biden's favorability in lots of immigrant communities has dropped dramatically, very unfortunately, that... You know, we might have been at a high watermark for Trump reasons. What do you see currently when you and your organization, both in state and nationally, are reaching out and talking? What are you hearing?
0: So I can tell you, and, you know, obviously, I'm not necessarily on the ground knocking those doors myself. i um, really proud of our organizers and our field program that gets to do that every single day. In the survey that we ran last year, we found 84 percent of respondents we're in favor of a Green New Deal. We found that 70% supported access to abortion care. We found that an overwhelming majority supported $15 in a union. You know, when we actually talk to our communities, and yes, there are always carve-outs, and yes, there are massive generational differences, and yes, especially when it comes to what wave of immigration these communities are, when their families came over, all of these things, you know, we can micro-target ourselves into saying these are not progressive folks. But what we found is when we have long, long persuasive conversations with them, time and time again, our folks support these issues. And yes, we're getting hit by a lot of misinformation and disinformation from the right, both within our communities and by the Republicans. As I'm sure you've seen, the GOP is setting up Asian organizing centers across the country, which means that you know for our folks, it's not just that standard calculus that a lot of folks apply to communities of color and immigrant communities where it's like, if we don't talk to them no one will and they just won't turn out and it'll be you know a net zero if if we don't talk to asian american voters the opposition will they have been they have been for 10 years and they're ramping that up now especially in battleground states across the country places like orange county places like las vegas atlanta soon probably the the philly suburbs and the harrisburg suburbs that we will lose a generation to the right because of that sustained outreach you know when you go to Hindu-American events in, in central Pennsylvania, when you show up to the Diwali the or the Holy Celebration or the Indian Independence Day, it is wall-to-wall the Republican Congressman Scott Perry, the Republican State Representative Greg Rothman, and then the Republican County Party doing voter registration. And you don't see anyone else from our side uh, or with a D next to their name actually showing up and doing that outreach. And that means that folks get disillusioned, And that means that folks go with a name that they recognize because, you know, Congressman Fitzpatrick showed up to their mosque once a month. They'd rather vote for the person that they know than this person that they never heard of. And that's especially what we saw in 2016, especially in places like Chinatown, where on the C3 side, you know, one of the reasons that we founded APIPA, why our leaders of our community organizations came together is that they would spend hours and hours and hours doing completely in language, in Mandarin and Cantonese, voter registration, GOTV, talking people through why it's so important to vote. And they'd be doing exit polling outside after the fact, Uh, all, of course, throughout that time, not being able to tell someone who to vote for. And that is always, always, always the first and biggest question people ask us. It's who they should vote for. Not why is it so important to vote? Not who's on the ballot? Not, you know, what, you know, is this a midterm or is this a presidential? It's who should we vote for? And, you know, in, in the in the gap, of having political infrastructure that could actually message to our people in a way that works for us and meets us where they're at. We had folks getting WeChat messages about Donald Trump. We had billboards in Chinese showing up in Chinatown, in Vietnamese showing up in South Philly. And that was the only candidate anyone heard of. And so they voted for him because they didn't know about an alternative. We offer our people an alternative. We talk about which candidates are showing up for our people and which ones are failing our communities. And we see them that we see that they respond time and time again. You know, in the primary that we just had in in Pennsylvania, we had a candidate who is Chinese, Taiwanese. Uh, His name is Will Gross, which is obviously not the most East Asian name of the world. So, you know, not a lot of voters necessarily looked at his name uh, on the ballot or looked at some of his signs and was like, oh, this is from our community. So, you know, total, you know, across all our seven endorsed candidates across the state. We in the last two weeks of the election, we knocked on 4,500 doors. We made 180,000 phone calls to let our folks know that there are Asian Americans on the ballot, or there are champions of our communities on the ballot, and that they needed to turn out. And what we saw in this election is this candidate, who, in House District 182, which is Center City, some of the richest parts of Philadelphia, and then Washington Avenue, which is where Southeast Asian refugees from the American invasion of Vietnam were first resettled and is just markedly different in terms of the class character, in terms of how much money they have, in terms of how many folks speak English, things like that, where we saw Will pick up the most support was where our folks were, where we concentrated our program. You know, our people are especially fired up to, to vote for one of our people, someone who not just shares our values, but actually understands our communities. And especially when we can leverage that, the power of Asian American candidates on the ballot and the power of folks from our community talking about our champions, talking to our voters, the experience of having someone knock on your door who either looks like you or understands your struggle or where the first question that we ask our voters is, what language do you wanna have this conversation in? And then we give them a menu of 15 languages, our people show up.
1: Do you think that the sum of the organizing among Democrats and progressives by category an identity equals a holistic program for persuading the majority of people to go our way. This is a bit of a wishy-washy answer, I know, but we need to do everything,
0: you know, especially in a year like this, which is going to decide not just who controls the governor's match in Pennsylvania, not just who controls the U.S. Senate, not just who controls Congress, but also who wins the presidential in 2024. Because if we lose this year, then we lose the voter ID referendum in 2023. If we lose that, then we lose the presidential in 24. And that's just the ball game in terms of us winning power and passing legislation for an entire generation. We need to do every, anything and everything we, that we need. And that means resourcing Asian organizing, Black organizing, Latinx organizing, organizing on the issues, organizing in rural white communities of students and other young people who are outside of, you know, off campus, things like that. There is no one approach that's actually going to get us over the finish line. We do actually need to experiment, and innovate, and try every single thing and keep throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks to actually figure this out, especially in a state as important as PA. But in terms of you know, what we do in the lane and the struggle that we hold, I'd say we do our job really, really well.
1: Tell me a little about what it's taken to build the groups that you've built. Um, a whole lot
0: of trust, first and foremost. You know We're incredibly honored by just the number of activists, especially elders in our community, folks who've been fighting the fight for our people going back 50, 60 years, Uh, the amount of people who are willing to come through our program, especially in 2020, and help us make those 1.3 million calls in those 15 different languages, the amount of uh, history it took in our communities to build that level of trust so that when our community leaders said, hey, this is the time we need to beat Donald Trump, we need to elect Joe Biden, this is our one shot our folks were ready to turn out. That especially is the biggest currency. And the biggest thing we have going for us is that we have folks who have earned our people's trust. And then other than that, you know, I can say, when we talk about the disinvestment in Asian organizing by political infrastructure, you know, the first budget these leaders wrote for APIPA in in 2020 in Pennsylvania for a community that was going to be and is and was the margin of victory the first budget folks wrote for our program was $200,000. And then we went and we in six months, we raised $1.5 million because folks outside the community who had experience on the C4 side, who had experience running IEs, who had had experience with how much it takes to run and win in Pennsylvania, knew that we needed a whole lot more than that when it came to actually resourcing our organization. But our, our C3s, our nonprofits, where uh, you know, the, the executive director of an Asian American nonprofit in Philly oftentimes makes less than one of my field organizers because that's all the resources, that's all the money they have. There just wasn't this ability to dream bigger and vision farther beyond what our folks know. And then as we've exposed our people to the C4 side, as we've exposed our people to PACs, as we've exposed our people to the coordinated side and campaigns, we they've started to see how much a bigger world there is and how many more resources. And sometimes, you know, uh, it it means realizing just how shut out from these conversations we have been in the past. But in a lot of times, it means realizing and seeing the opportunity that we have to actually deliver for our people and put resources directly in their hands, you know, hire hundreds of paid canvassers and paid phone bankers, hiring people from our community to actually knock those doors and make those phone calls, rather than, you know, dropping in a vended program that isn't actually going to meet our people where they're at because they don't actually know anything about the turf that, and the doors that they're knocking on. All of that combined meant that we were able to stand up a massive program in very little time, and that means that's helped power our way through the last two years of our work.
1: What gave you the sense that there wasn't enough of a national organization that you needed to start one there? There are a number that preceded you in that area. I'm not an expert in how good they are, how big they are, et cetera. What was your evidence and your decision making there? Yeah. So
0: our national organization, it's called the Asian American Power Network. It's the first ever uh, table of Asian American in-state, uh, state-based 501c4 political organizations, and it's specifically built by uh, and powered by the organizations that were responsible for you know our win in Pennsylvania. That were responsible for the historic Asian American turnout in Georgia that have been doing the work in battlegrounds like Michigan and North Carolina and that are actually on the ground day in and day out having those conversations year-round with our people in a way that fully national never boots on the ground DC-based organizations just aren't able to have their you know their finger on the pulse of the community in the way that we are and so what we saw is this disconnect between, and this is not to you know talk trash about any national organization, it's just a fact of the matter. In-state and state-based organizations, the boots on the ground are the folks who actually move the votes and flip the seats. And we needed national infrastructure and DC-based infrastructure that was directly accountable to us and was focused on resourcing our organizations rather than pulling resources from the important work that we do to just, you know, let's say drop a bunch of mail, run a bunch of digital ads. But not actually in a way that works for the Asian American community in the Atlanta suburbs or the Asian American community in Raleigh or the Asian American community in Montgomery and Bucks County in Pennsylvania, because we're actually talking to those folks day in, day out. We know what issues they care about. We know that, you know, uh, our communities get stereotyped as caring about education and immigration. uh, And, uh, you know, that's about it. Right. But when we talk to our communities in the Philly suburbs, when we talk to our folks in South Philly, they tell us things like there's a housing crisis in Chinatown and South Philly. They tell us things like they're mad at the pipelines cutting through their backyard in Chester County. They tell us things like they're tired of the lack of gun violence prevention in Bucks County. So when we talk, when we're able to message to our folks about that, we get more bang for our buck than when we talk about things that our folks are stereotyped about. But they're not actually seeing their skin in the game and these issues in the same way that they do local issues. So we built the power network to be directly accountable to our organizations, the boots on the ground, and also very specifically to do a lot of gap filling, because like I said, we're all brand new organizations. Uh, You know, the older of us came around in 2016 and 2018. The newer of us came about in 2020, or even uh, we're working right now to build new Asian American in-state C4s in places like Florida and Texas, as well as to support growing efforts in places like Arizona. But we have a lot of gaps. You know, we have a data gap where the, uh, you know, Asian American voter file data just ain't what it should be. And we actually, as again, the folks who run the heavy program are able to do the randomized control t- trials, are able to do the A-B testing, are able to actually verify these models. We need a direct pipeline to folks at Catalyst and Civis and Target Smart, the folks who are actually making these decisions to say, hey, these are the, these are the ways in which your data is good. And these are the 15,000 ways in which it needs to be better. You know, similar, we have a staffing gap where we have some really amazing, really badass EDs at our organizations, and we have a heck of a lot of folks who make fantastic field organizers and are ready and willing to throw themselves into the work. But Asian-American policy directors, Asian-American field directors, Asian-American comms and digital directors, or even canvas managers, there's never been any sort of training and developmental infrastructure that's actually focusing on training the next generation of Asian-American director-level staff. And in in the lack of that, we have hiring gaps. Our organizations have worked our ass off to get ready for 2022, but we're still looking for competent, experienced field managers, field director, organizing managers, organizing directors, digital staff. And so we built the Power Network to build a first-of-its-kind campaign school that's going to launch in uh, July or August of this year, to train that next generation and and to get our organizers and our activists up to the level of actually being able to run heavy, heavy, sustained, scaled year-round field program, but also in a way that actually is specifically focused on talking about how do you target uh, Asians online through digital ads? How do you target Asians at the doors? How do you talk to and message to Asians through your comms plans? Because, you know, we can work with infrastructure like Priorities USA, we can work with infrastructure like the Center for Popular Democracy or Working Families Party or, uh, you know, SEIU and NEA when it comes to just basic Canvas training programs, when it comes to digital targeting and digital ad programs and things like that. But they're not actually going to be able to train us now how we talk to our people. So we needed brand new infrastructure that was directly meeting our needs and filling our gaps in a way that just wasn't in existence before.
1: A lot of this seems very tactical to me and important. How much does it matter what the general party progressive message is and how apt it is for different subsets, like some of the ones that you deal with? How much does it matter what the president is doing or saying or the words that we're using? I've heard people say that we're losing people over things that affect everybody, like inflation or a sense that you should should be rewarded for hard work and not be given a handout, or some of the more conservative but fairly American ways in which uh, people interpret politics in our country. How do you think about that relationship between what you're specifically doing and the broader picture? It's incredibly
0: important. You know, we need politicians, especially progressive politicians out there. Actually, I mean, even the most basic act of saying the word Asian and making sure that our people know that they are going to be included in these policies in a way that they they haven't been before or haven't felt before. Showing up to our communities, letting their faces be seen, showing up, talking about the epidemic of anti-Asian violence out there it's incredibly important that our that our politicians be seen delivering for our people because our people are so used to politicians not caring about them, not reaching out to them or taking their vote for granted and not actually doing the legwork. And so like 2020, absolutely, maybe it was a high watermark because of the unique uh, issue of we had a president using the largest bully pulpit in the land to talk trash about our community and saying that we caused this pandemic that was killing, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of our community members in addition to so many other folks, that was uniquely convenient of him to decide to put a target on our back when it came to mobilizing Asian voters. And that's not going to be the case again. So we actually need politicians in a way that they didn't necessarily do in 2020 to put in the legwork, put in the time and show up for our people, especially so then we can go to our people and say, hey, look who is delivering for you. Look who is saying your names. Look who is talking about your struggles and look at which party and which politicians aren't doing any of that. And when it comes to the values, in 2021 in the Philly suburbs, we had a school board race where it was a, a Chinese-American Republican anti-CRT, anti-public education candidate um, running in Pennsylvania. You can cross-file and you can run in Democratic primaries at, at lo- the local level in addition to Republicans, uh, against a South Asian pro-education Uh, pro-teachers' union candidate. And what we saw is, you know, despite the fact that we had conservatives in our community mobilizing and organizing around the Chinese-American anti-Asian candidate, and we had pro-education, pro-union, pro-tell-the-whole-story activists and organizers supporting the South Asian pro-education candidate, the Asian vote went to the South Asian pro-education candidate, even the East Asian vote, even the Chinese vote in that area because we're not just going to show up and give you our vote because you look like us. We're not just going to show up and give you our vote because you speak our language. Those certainly help. And some of the research that, that is coming out of California shows that the single greatest determinant of Asian-American turnout is the presence of an Asian-American on the ballot. We're smart enough to know that you actually got to deliver to our, for our people, too, and you actually got to meet us where we're at on our values. And like I said, we are a fundamentally progressive community with an engagement gap, with an outreach gap. So when we have these longer listening conversations and make our people heard for the first time and get them to open up by asking them questions that no one has ever bothered to knock on their door before and ask them about, we find that they move on these issues, right? That they move from thinking about the fact that they supposedly pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or supposedly came into this country in the right way and things like that. They move to thinking about their children and their family members and their community members who are struggling with these issues and wanting to show up and support them. And that's especially why it's so important that we do this year round in language work in our communities, because when you're dropping in a week or a month before Election Day, you don't have the time to earn that trust and have those longer conversations. You need to start early. We, We launched our 2022 election program in October of 2021 because we knew how important the 2022 election cycle was. And we need that that lead time and that time to ramp our field program and have all of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of conversations in all of those languages to earn that trust and get people to open up and get ready to actually talk about the candidates when we get to that point. Right now we're knocking on doors, now that the primary is over, talking about democracy defense, talking about how Attorney General Josh Shapiro defended our democracy in 2020 when folks were trying to quote unquote stop the steal. When, you know, in the election that saw the largest Asian-American turnout in Pennsylvania and U.S. history, we saw Attorney General Shapiro show up and defend our votes and defend our voices. So we're on the doors talking to our people about what that meant and how it meant to have their vote and their voice defended and how we need to show up in this year and make our voice heard for the folks who've shown up for us in the past and are actually going to show up for us in the future.
1: How are you doing in other states? It sounds like you've got a pretty significant program, especially for an organization this young going in Pennsylvania, what's the status around the rest of the country in building that uh, similar stuff up? So the first thing I'd say is
0: I'd love to connect you with our national ED, Nadia, who comes out of America Votes, or the, other, the EDs of those other state-based organizations, because they're always going to be able to talk about their program better than I have. What I can say that is in places like Georgia and places like North Carolina and places like Michigan, They've learned the lessons of their launch in 2020, and we all spent 2021 building our infrastructure, building our organizer pipelines, building our vol infrastructure, hiring staff, knocking on doors, getting ready for 2022 because we knew how important and how intense 22 is. And so, you know, we have a lot of different dynamics in a lot of different states and a lot of different organizations at a lot of different places, but we're all united around the shared knowledge that right now, this year, it is yet another do or die all on the line election and that we all need to throw down together. And I think the Georgia runoff is an especially important example of that, where after the 2020 election, after we won in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, and we saw that the Senate was up for grabs in Georgia, our organizations across the country send canvassers send phone bankers send translators send data directors and field directors and canvas managers down to georgia to work through the asian american advocacy fund georgia's uh, asian american 501c4 and to help spike asian turnout to the highest that's ever been there and win that election and that's especially why we're so excited to throw down together in the future through the power network because we've seen what happens when we come together as asian organizers uh, and Asian leaders across the country and actually build power together. We see that we're, we're stronger together and that we can actually win elections. We can deliver votes at a significantly higher level when we're sharing resources, when we're sharing, uh, data, when we're sharing even things as, as simple as persuasion scripts or translations and translated materials. We're actually more effective united than we are doing our own thing in our own separate states, working really well with the rest of the political infrastructure, the non-Asian infrastructure in the state, but not talking to each other at the level that we could be and we should be.
1: What's your assessment of how we stack up against the other side that's also trying to organize, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, Asians around the country? uh, I mean,
0: I think we're doing a pretty good job. I also think that uh, they have a lot of money and they're going to kind of flood the zone with it in a way that, you know, we are, we as an IE, we as independent organizations in our community are going to try to match up with, but that we're also going to need to see spending on our side, on the hard side, in addition to the soft side, as well as, you know, through other organizations, if we're going to be able to stack up. So like right now in the Republican organizing center that just opened up in Las Vegas, does it hold a candle to one API Nevada that has been on the ground doing the work on the C4 side since 2018 or their C3 that's been literally de- delivering meals and putting uh, jabs and arms throughout the entire pandemic? No, it doesn't. But if we get complacent, if we you know take our eye off the ball, if we stop resourcing our Asian organizations to do this work year round, they will absolutely pick up ground, uh, especially in battleground states across the country.
1: Well, the amount of effort and intelligence and organization that it takes to do this is kind of astonishing when you think about what has to be done around the country. And I commend you for putting your shoulder to the wheel on it. And I think we're better for it. Is there a question I failed to ask you that I should have? Um, No, I think that this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you
0: taking the time to hear about all of our work. It is heartening to hear it's going on. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much. Uh, and to anyone who's listening, you know, find your local Asian American organization. Go to, you know, Google the Asian American Power Network, Google APIPA uh, or apipennsylvania.org uh, and find a way to get in the fight because we need every single one of us uh, coming home to our communities and throwing down if we're going to get through the next couple of years.